Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrel pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Something that Garrett Cole did today made me question reality. Do you want to know what it was? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I think I started the podcast very similar like two or three weeks ago. It's true, although you didn't say my name right up top, which kind of threw me. I was like, I did it on purpose because you always (laughs) make fun of me. Alex? No, uh, no, I'm not doing that today. I'm just telling you. We're going straight into it. Uh, Dive right in. What did Garrett Cole do? He took off his hat and I saw the hair that was underneath and I was like, I don't like that very much. But when he has the hat on, I love the hair so much. So he made me question what I really know about whether I like how Garrett Cole looks or not. (laughs) We've talked on this podcast before about how baseball players look very different and sometimes not quite as good without the hat on because you get so used to the uniform and the feel of it. Someone like Chris Bryant having that hat on and looking so much better. And the flip side of that, I will say, is... That when Todd Frazier takes off his hat, I'm always surprised at how great his hairline is, how much hair he has. He just seems like the kind of guy who would be balding Widow's Peak style. <laughs> that is true. I I think you're you're maybe being a little bit hard on Garrett Cole. Uh, probably That's because the first time I've ever been accused of that. <laughs> <laughs> probably because the only real instances in which you see him without his hat are like directly after he has gone out and exerted himself at like (laughs) full energy for an hour, maybe hours on end. If you're talking about tonight's baseball game and then he just takes off his hat and you're like, wow, it's greasy and sweaty up there. And then you take a step back and it's like, I, I probably could have guessed that. Well, he's the weird instance of player who looks like his hair is too long when his hat is off, but it looks like a normal length when it's on. I don't, it's like an optical illusion. I don't quite really understand it, but something about the length of it coming out from underneath his hair or from underneath his hat, it feels very perfect to me. And in conjunction with that beard, what a, what a great beard on that guy. I feel like we talk a lot about, at least on the Ringer MLB show, Michael Bauman talks a lot about heavy set bearded men. And he's not a heavyset bearded man. He's a tall, very powerful, strong looking, but very bearded man. True. Also good at throwing a baseball. Don't know if you heard, but he did one hell of a job doing that tonight and sending the Astros on to the ALCS. The last 25 times he's gone out and thrown a baseball. What he's doing right now is, I it's like shockingly good to me. Um, neither of us were really old enough to experience like 99, 2000, 2001 Pedro. But I imagine this must have been what it felt like because I've just never seen anything like it. I know people say that a lot, but I there's no way, you know, Zach Cram was saying today that he's not he's not impressed by any strikeout numbers anymore because the strikeouts are so through the roof and everyone's striking out more than ever and trying to hit home runs more than ever. And I feel like that's true. I feel like generally I agree with that principle. Because, you know, there are more strikeouts as a league-wide. But individually, you know, pitcher-wise, like, 
there aren't more guys striking out 300 batters than ever before. It's still just as rare. Like, Sale did it last year, and we were like, are we ever going to get another one of these? And then Garrett Cole was like, huh, you thought. And did it, it came out and did it this year. I feel like what we're watching right now, just visually seeing it with my eyes, I'm like, I don't, there is no one in any era who could stop him from striking out 10 to 15 guys every time he goes out right now. Yeah, I mean, I think it raises some very interesting um, theoretical questions about how to contextualize all of the greatness that we're watching just because so much of it feels very um, at once like unparalleled, but also just kind of coming up out of nowhere. Like when Pete Alonso broke the home run rookie record this year, I was like, that's extremely fun, but it also feels like I just watched this happen. So like, I'm extremely impressed, but also, is it going to happen next year? I don't know. Is 50 home runs cool anymore? I, I kind of feel the same way about the strikeouts as I do about the home runs. It's like the people at the very top were going to be doing amazing things like this anyway. And the trend upwards has not buoyed them as much as it has buoyed people on the lower end of the curve. Do you know what I'm saying? Because like, yes. the whole the thing with the whole home runs thing is like there are more people hitting 20 than ever before because these people would have been hitting six before all the wall scrapers are going out. It's not like Jason Vargas is going out and striking 15 guys out in a playoff game. You know, it's not like anybody can go out and uh, and strike out as many guys as they want. You know, like you look at a trend in another sport, you look at the NBA and like Brooke Lopez actually is going out and hitting like eight threes in the game. It's not really like that in baseball. More guys are getting like maybe a strikeout per inning, which used to be the the benchmark for a guy who strikes a ton of people out and anything above nine K per nine was, was insane. But Garrett Cole literally set the record this year for strikeouts per nine. And I, maybe it's buoyed a little bit during the regular season by striking out um, like the seven through nine spot. But in the playoffs, like I've talked about before on the show, you don't really get, a week seven through nine in every single lineup every time through the order. Like the Ast- or the the Rays are not a team that just will just lay down and strike out whenever they want. That's never been their MO. And it continues not to be. Like the, all the people on that team are really good contact hitters and really good at protecting the zone. And they knew what they were going to have to face in Verlander and Cole. And Cole still came out and fucking, frankly, dominated them both times. Not even Verlander could do that. I think as fans, it's very easy to get caught up in like the overwhelming sense of like, we're seeing things happen that have never happened before. And we're seeing players be as good as they've ever been. And like it, it sometimes it's very hard to contextualize it. And then you sit down and watch Garrett Cole just pitch a baseball game and you're like, Oh yeah, that's right. He's just really, really good. And that's what that feels like to just watch that happen. Yeah. Watch a superstar perform without having to worry about the, the outside existential factors that are affecting him. Right. Uh, okay. I guess we didn't even really do the formal intro. This may have been our longest top of show in the history of doing this podcast, but we have a great conversation coming up with Fangraphs managing editor Meg Rowley, who was very kind to join us very late on this Thursday night um, after the final game five of the ALDS in which the Astros advanced. Um, so we're going to get to that right after this. But before we do that, I'm Bobby Wagner. I'm Alex Baisley. And this is Tipping Pitches. Tipping Pitches. 
All right, we have commissioned another guest to help us, Alex. This is, I think, our first playoff guest. I, I think I might be making that up, but I, it feels true in my heart. So on the line, we have Fangraphs, Meg Rally. Hello, Meg. Hello. We finally Thanks for got, having me. We finally got <laughs> to put this together after some, some scheduling snafus. The playoffs are a busy time for everyone. I can imagine how busy it must be for you. Yeah, it's a, it's a grind. Uh, you know, I'm lucky to like, like you are to work with people who work very hard. And then I have to make sure that their good words make it up in a timely way. And some of my own too. So yeah, it's busy, but it's, it's a good kind of busy and then it ends. And then we're all sad for like five months. And we're trying to make stories out <laughs> of like middle infielder signing for $7 million one year contracts. Yeah, I mean the off season. I don't know. I I kind of like off season writing because uh, people's baseline tolerance for the kind of weird tweet is swearing okay on your podcast. Of course, like Please. like gazing at faces bullshit that I like to write. Uh, people are like, yeah, there's nothing else going on. So Meg can kind of wild out with this if she wants to. <laughs> so I I kind of like it from a writing perspective, but from a, an editing perspective and a running fangraphs perspective, yes, it is uh, stressful once. So get into the off season because uh, particularly the last couple, it has just been very quiet. So we should enjoy playoff baseball while we can. Before we actually get into the the nitty gritty of the playoffs, we're, we're taping this on a Thursday night about 8 p.m. Pacific time. So we are about to react to Garrett Cole, Garrett Coling. But mm-hmm. I, we we often ask journalists when they come on this podcast about like processy questions. So before we get, let the ball down the hill on the playoffs... I have a question for you about like being managing editor of Fangraphs and also writing so frequently. Do you find that like you have to like take one hat off and put the other hat on? Like how much do they inform each other? How much do they help each other? How much do they hurt each other? Uh, So frequently it's just generous in a way that uh, is not borne out by the facts or really what I deserve. But yeah, it's different. It's a different... um, the the way that you think about writing and the way that you think about editing, obviously they're related concepts, but the kind of your, the part of your brain that's active, at least for me when I'm writing is a very different kind of, uh, it's a different exercise than, than editing. So it can be tricky. Um, I think that the, the first, I don't know, however many months I was the, managing editor. I was also still running the Hardball Times before Rachel McDaniel assumed the managing editor role over there. So I just had very little time to write because I was running two sites instead of one. And now that I'm just running the one site, uh, we're, we're sitting at about a post a, a week for me, which is nice. Uh, I'd like to be doing more and hope to be uh, in the, the next little bit here. But it's it's tricky. It's mostly just tricky to carve out the time without uh, people on staff needing something. Uh, <laughs> and and they should, they should need stuff because when they need things, that generally means that we are going to have a piece ready to go up in short order. And so it's a good thing, but um, it, balancing it all can be kind of tricky at times. And I'm fortunate to get to rely on uh, helper editors like, like Dylan Higgins and Brennan Golowski. So I, I, I'm able to say, hey, I wrote something and I also need an editor. So will you please tell me if this is silly or too twee or what what have you or just uh, plain wrong. So uh, even editors need editors. <laughs> it's a two-way street. Has the, the move over from 
the hardball times um, from the last playoffs? I mean, I know you were writing for Fangraphs, but has that um, move over from the hardball times to Fangraphs kind of changed how you've engaged with the playoffs this year at all? I mean, I'm sure that your schedule is slightly more hectic for one, <laughs> um, but also the sites have two um, very distinct bents. And so I'm just kind of curious if you're if you're looking at things through a different lens at all. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think one of the uh, strengths of the hardball times, because it isn't uh, bound to sort of a news calendar, is that it allows its writers to take very deep, very thoughtful looks at things. And, you know, the method that they use to do that can vary. So you also have folks writing at THT that do work that's uh, sometimes very, very stats oriented, but also will be, you know, there's like a historical deep dive on a particular player or era or what have you. So, uh, the, the nice part about that is that it isn't newsy. The weird part about that in the postseason is that it can feel very disconnected from the rest of baseball, even when, uh, the writers who are pitching over there tend to gear that the pieces that time of year more toward playoff themes. They aren't always or even uh, ever really engaged in the current series that you're watching. So it's it's been nice um, to be able to have both the writing and the editing I'm doing be much more closely aligned with the actual baseball calendar, uh, just because you feel, or at least I have felt more connected to the the stuff that everyone else is watching and, and caring about, um, which isn't to say that people don't enjoy or care about the stuff that goes up at THT in the month of October. It's just, it, it operates on a different pace. So yeah, it feels, it feels very different. Uh, and, you know, last year uh, did not involve editing on say Saturday. And now that's part of, that's <laughs> part of the thing, but that's just part of the thing this time of year. That's just part of it. Yeah. Um, you know, everybody's, everybody's busy. So I'm busy editing. Other people are busy writing and we're all, I mean, for a while, busy watching like four games a day. <laughs> those four, those four game days are a lot. Um, yeah. Okay. Shall we talk about this year's playoffs? Sure. Uh, so last week on the show, Alex and I did a segment where we tried to suss out what is the ideal for playoff baseball in the era of the quote, juiced ball in the era of quote, team and balance. And uh, boy, do we feel kind of stupid after the ball is no longer juiced <laughs> and the teams, I guess, are not quite as imbalanced as we thought they might be because the Dodgers are out. The the team with the most wins to ever lose in the divisional series. Um, do you think that this makes people feel like it's more ideal that the ball is not flying off the bat in what seems to be unnatural ways and that there has been an upset? Um, does it feel like satisfying to you as someone who watches so much baseball and is so hardcore in on this for the entire year? I like that. I like when there are a couple of upsets. Um, I don't know. I mean, the, the nationals were a wild card team and clearly they, you know, they were carrying their own sort of playoff millstone around, but that, that was a good baseball team. You know, it was not a, it was not a bad baseball team sure. <laughs> uh, during the regular season. They won 93 games. So, um, you know, there, I think it's, it's nice when there are some up, upsets because at least in the early rounds, you don't want to be totally bound to predictability. I like seeing the 
best teams uh, match up against one another. So in that respect, I guess I'm a little disappointed that the Dodgers didn't go farther. But candidly, I've just kind of been of the impression that the Astros are just going to lay waste to whatever is in front of them. Uh, and now they're positioned to, to do that, or at least to try to with, with the Yankees on the docket. I think that the ball being less lively in the postseason in a vacuum, I'm fine with, but within the context of the broader conversation about the ball, I find very troubling yeah. because I don't think that it's good for the sport to, have something as instrumental to baseball as the literal <laughs> baseball. I know. It's just like, it's the literal baseball. It's the ball. <laughs> like the sport is named after this object and it's pretty important to the way the sport progresses. And either there is some, you know, mad scientist in the back of an MLB lab deciding what kind of offensive environment uh, they think we should have, or Major League Baseball seems to have a shockingly poor amount of control over the manufacturing process of the most important piece of equipment on the field. Of which the company that they own that makes the ball, too. Right. So I... um, how do I want to put this? You know, baseball's made up. I mean, like it happens, right? Like Garrett Cole pitched in Houston tonight. That is a, an event in history that took place. But the rules of it are made up. It isn't gravity is as big a role as gravity plays in it. And so I think that it's um, because it is all manufactured and it just happens the way it does because we all decided it would happen that way. Being able to trust it is really important because otherwise you start to remember that this is all just a a figment of someone's imagination made manifest. So I think that um, it would sort of be to MLB's benefit to take seriously the idea that they need to be able to say, here's what's going on with the ball. And like, we know that because we talked to these very smart people and we know that they have access to very smart people because they commissioned them to do a study on this question already. So um, I am for upsets, but I am anti like feeling a little squirmy about what you're seeing on the field being a reflection of the player's talent level versus just someone arbitrarily, whether they mean to be or not, right? Because we don't know. But <laughs> dialing a switch up and down uh, for for lack of a, a better way of putting it and, and deciding, oh, okay, well, I guess today, Today, that ball that looked like it was going to be a walk-off for the Dodgers off the bat of Will Smith is just a fly-out, you know. So uh, that that part I find disconcerting. And they just seem to not be able to talk about it in a way that makes anybody feel any better. <laughs> yeah, they're certainly not all communications majors up there no. in, the, in New York. Yeah, it's not a yes or a no. It's just kind of a shrug emoji. And it's like, that doesn't make me feel any better about any of this. Yeah, no. No, it does not. <laughs> um, you mentioned uh, kind of looking at what's playing out on the field and and wondering how reflective of that is uh, of, a, of a player's actual talent level. And you, you, you tweeted something out a few days ago that talked about um, how your, your constant state is just kind of being extremely anxious on behalf of strangers. And yeah. that's something that I feel like is, is no more viscerally felt than in the playoffs where it provides the, the biggest stage for 
um, a person to succeed or or fail and be the the only one to do that. And I think of Clayton Kershaw or Joe Kelly or or Trent Grisham, you know, earlier in the wild card game, and it, it feels like this really interesting phenomenon in baseball. I, I, I mean, kind of, I'm wondering kind of how you um, process these these moments. Do you feel like baseball as a sport is unique in that way, or at least uniquely unfair in that way? I don't know if it's uniquely unfair. It's uh, dissimilar from most other team sports in that, uh, you know, that, that pitcher batter matchup as a uh like as individual guys squaring off against one another is is intimate and visceral in a way that i think is pretty unusual in sports i don't know if it's unique to baseball but uh nothing else is coming to mind although someone's going to tweet at me that I'm missing something obvious, but there's like an intimacy to that, um, that contest that is, uh, it, you know, it draws you in and like the camera gives you like, they're giving you Kershaw full in the face and not just when he's sitting devastated in the dugout, you're looking at Kershaw, you can see the sweat on, on his brow, right? You can see when he twitches a little bit and looks nervous. Um, you know, you can see a batter, jubilant or devastated when, you know, he swings through a pitch that he should have been able to hit. And so I think that it lends itself to that. And like, you can see, except for catchers, like you can see their faces, right? So it's different than football in that way where these guys are wearing helmets and you kind of, it's like everybody kind of blends together a little bit and it's not as fast paced as basketball. So it lets you sit in those tense moments. And then when they finally give way to action, like it feels really kinetic because it's been so still for so long. Uh, and all of that combined with guys playing roles that they don't typically play during the regular season because it's sort of all hands on deck means that there's a margin for error that you're not necessarily used to, especially with really good starters. So you just fret. I just fret. I, I'm so... <laughs> You know, when Kershaw came back out last night, I had gotten, this is like the one game I've watched out of my house. I went and, and had drinks with, with baseball friends and we watched it at a pizza place near, near my house. And we just, he gave up that first home run and I just went, no, I looked like a slow-mo sneeze or like the stream painting. And then he gave up the second one to Soto and I just went, no, for even longer, like the, like the mummy and the mummy when you spit bugs at guys. So you're just, uh, it's, it's stressful and the camera finds them so immediately after they've done this thing that they just must feel horrible about. And you can see their faces, you know? Yeah. You can just see them full in the face. My yes. response to Kershaw was just utter shock. Like, I just <sighs> couldn't say anything. I was sitting next to someone else, and then she turned to me, and she was like, you're not reacting at all. And I'm like, am I not? I can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, um... 
it's not, it's not as if you, you know, like steady people are inclined to look at something like that. And for a very long time, just attribute it to flukiness, but he's pitched enough postseason innings now that like the narrative is inescapable and we can't even really in quite the same way that we would have been able to a couple of years ago, lean on it and say, Oh, well, it's not that it's not that many innings, you know, it's just not that many innings. It's like, yeah. yeah. But like it's 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 a, it's a season's worth of innings now. Now, granted, yeah. stretched over a number of years, right? Uh, so he's not the same guy in those you know six and a third innings this year as he was when he pitched two in two thousand eight. But like it's two hundred and three postseason innings. Like he's gonna have to account for this when when Kershaw is up for the Hall of Fame, and I am confident he will be a Hall of Famer. This is the thing that people are going to point to as like a knock against his Hall of Fame case. And we're going to have to grapple with that, even though I ultimately think he'll end up making his way to Cooperstown. We're going to have to talk about this. It's going to suck. I think, frankly, the most agonizing part about watching the Nationals come back and then win that game yesterday is the confluence of the Kershaw thing and the Bryce Harper thing. Yeah. The Nationals winning their first series without... Uh, or their first series in franchise history the year after Bryce Harper leaves. Just the fact that we can check those two boxes in one fell swoop, in one swing, it's just, that's agonizing to have to watch, knowing in real time I have to think about narratives because I'm the producer of a baseball show. Well, and I said to, you know, I, uh, we on Effectively Wild, we talked about this game a lot today. And I, I made this point to Ben. It's just a very, when you have two franchises that feel like they have some sort of um, permanently stuck to them postseason misfortune, you know, someone has to win. And so one of those bits of misery has to give way. And you don't necessarily know at any given moment in, in the game, in a decisive game like that, like which team it's going to be. And as soon, as soon as Kershaw gave up those home runs to tie it, I was like, the Nationals are going to win. And that wasn't a particularly rational reaction because the Nationals bullpen is bad. And, you know, even though they've been able to hold it together at moments in this in this series, obviously, like it is not good. It is not reasonable as a person who like believes in math to be like, oh, it's definitely over. It took Howie Kendrick hitting a grand slam to be over. Seriously. Who had money on that? No one. Not a single, not a single soul alive. He had he had had such a terrible series up until that point. So, you know, you just like it that that second home run went over the wall, and you just felt like, oh, this is this is the baseball gods moving the pieces around on the board before like our hero gets destroyed by some mythical beast. Yeah. And then it wasn't a beast at all. It was just Howie Kendrick, who by all rights is a nice guy. And like, what a nice evening for him because he had had, you know, he'd had a bad play in the field. Very upsetting. He's back in LA, was not exactly beloved there. But yeah, it's just, uh, <sighs> man, the Kershaw stuff is so rough. And then the TBS broadcast went back to him so many goddamn times in that So dugout. many times. I know. They just kept matching that same button. It's utterly cruel. Um, <laughs> so, Obviously, the narratives were terrible. The takes were terrible. I think that was a lot of our first thoughts. Um, and then once you kind of sift through that a little bit, you get into start thinking about the Dave Roberts decisions. And yeah. I think that not only do I want to talk about Dave Roberts, I want to talk about just the managerial bashing in general that happens during the playoffs. And I'm curious if like 
if you think that managers are this bad for the rest of the season, or is it just because we're watching it closer? And is there a way to kind of resist the urge to bash managers for decisions that don't align with our analytics or the analytics that we publicly know? Like, should we be conscious about trying to resist that because they're making decisions from a place of internal knowledge? Or should we just come out and just be like, yeah, listen, Dave Roberts made the worst mistake of my lifetime? I think that it's reasonable to, I think that we can probably do both things, right? So I think that you are, you're hinting at something that I think is absolutely right, which is that managers, I mean, teams generally um, have so much more information at their disposal about any particular matchup, the state of a particular player, both physically and mentally. So there is an, a, a vast information asymmetry between the folks watching at home, even very well-informed, smart baseball fans and a team employee, right? They just know stuff, right? So like during yeah, especially the, the during, Dodgers. Well, and just, you know, like you'll, you'll have times where a, a reliever who you think is good and better and probably is those things doesn't come into pitch. And, you know, sometimes it's because the manager really goofed and didn't think about it clearly, but sometimes like he knows a thing, right? Maybe he knows that like that, uh, player's mom is sick or whatever, right? Like they just know things that we don't know. So I think that it is reasonable to, uh, to grant that reality. But I think it's also reasonable to say there are some decisions where stuff, the, the decision-making is sound and stuff doesn't work out and that's just how it goes. Or it's a really close call and neither option is good and you just happen to pick the wrong one and that's just how the die is cast sometimes, right? Sometimes them's the breaks. But I do think that there are times where decisions are are obviously wrong and it's okay for us to say, Hey, that was obviously kind of boneheaded, right? Like in this game with the Dodgers, the decision, uh, that, that, uh, Martinez made to let Strasburg take that plate appearance in what the sixth, was it the sixth? My internet loading faster. <laughs> I just went over to our uh, play logs and to click into that, I am now seeing the uh, win expectancy chart from the Cardinals Braves game, and it made me laugh again. Um, uh, it was the fifth. Okay. Fifth. Thank you. Goodness. Right. <laughs> um, that's the other thing. It's like my I have the worst time dilation. It's just freaking crazy. So like. Uh, there is an argument to be made that Strasbourg should never have taken that plate appearance, right? Um, that you had uh, two on with no outs and even with sacrifice, like surely there was someone better. Uh, that decision could go either way. We're not scrutinizing it heavily because it didn't end up mattering, Mm-hmm. Right, like the Nationals won, and Strauss uh, went back out there and clutched, it pitched a clean uh, inning after that, and we didn't have to see more of the Nationals' bad bullpen than we needed to, and he he pitched another. Oh, it's just the one. He pitched two. He pitched two more innings, clean innings after that. This game happened yesterday. Seriously, <laughs> last I night. I podcasted about it. For two hours, and I am forgetting <laughs> some of the details. Anyway, so all I can so, remember is Joe Kelly's glasses. That's all I can see. Yeah, the he the he's specs very are, tight pants. Yeah, this he's he has a look. Um, so like you know, we could be scrutinizing Dave Martinez's choice there more, but we're not because it kind of worked out and it was a close call. Uh, I think that the decision to bring Joe Kelly out in the tenth was an obviously bad call. 
given some of the other options they had. But maybe you think, oh, he he's he looks great. He's th- he's thrown hard. I'm not super uh, confident in Kenley Jansen. He looks mortal, kind of like Kirsch. Maybe that's your thinking. So then leave him out there once he's loaded the bases. You know, a guy who has famously great stuff, but like often shaky command. That's a that's a choice that we can look at it and say, yeah, you you made a bad you made a bad mistake. Now the Dodgers this evening, I think, have confirmed that um, even though there had been some some murmuring that Roberts uh, might be on a, a wobbly chair, that he's coming back in 2020. I think that it's also reasonable for us to say, okay, you made this bad choice. Now I want to hear how you talk about it when you're a day, you're a couple days removed from this devastating loss. Cause if the, the takeaway you have is, Hey, I should never do that again. Well, okay. We all make bad mistakes. I, I, uh, you know, I one time thought that I should get bangs and I only narrowly got talked out of it. So that would have been <laughs> a terrible choice. Uh, we all make bad choices. And if we learn from them, then, you know, this Dodgers team is going to be good again next year. And, uh, and maybe it'll be fine. I think that we sometimes revel in the manager bashing in a way that is, uh, just unkind. But, um, I also think that we tend to not want to, uh, except for the guys who resi- reveal themselves to be like bad guys, we don't really want to like we don't want to enjoy what happened to Clayton Kershaw. We don't even really want to enjoy what happened to Joe Kelly. It's a lot easier to just be mad at uh, Dave Roberts because he's the one who put him there, right? Like, yeah. uh, uh, he tried really hard, and I'm sure he wanted to go differently. But like J- Joe Kelly didn't like decide to give up a grand slam to Howie Kendrick. But uh, Dave decided to put him on the mound. So I think that it also just gives us an outlet to like be mad, but not be like mad to people who are clearly devastated in the dugout. Mm -hmm. I can't get over the, I can't. Yeah. Well, and it, it feels like the kind of thing where over the course of the season, you like, you never really know how to tell who's a good manager, but you can, you can tell who's a bad manager because you see them in front of you on the field make the, the wrong moves. And if they make the right moves and they work out, then hopefully you don't notice a thing at all because the, the pinch hitter gets a hit or the reliever comes in and strikes out the side. And, and it feels like, especially on this, on this heightened stage, it's very easy to scrutinize the, the one call that Dave Roberts made right Right. or wrong or whatever. Uh, it's very easy to just blow that up into the biggest proportions and be like, does he, is he getting fired tonight? Is he getting fired before the game ends? Like what? Right. Uh, I, th- I think as spectators, that's a very easy position to take. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, it's uh, it's very easy for us because we're, we're cozy at home and our job's not on the line if he, you know, if this happens. And uh, so I think it's, it's a, it's a natural impulse, but one that we should be, mindful of but then again like you know Dave Roberts doesn't see any of our tweets so uh maybe people should just be free to wild out who knows (laughs) (laughs) um how do you tend to discern kind of rooting interests so to speak in the playoffs and I know you are a are a journalist and write about baseball professionally and so you may not tweet 
uh, that you're rooting for the Astros or the the Nationals, but um, I think all of us feel pulls in in different directions um, for certain players or for certain moments, and it's it kind of speaks to I think something that Bobby brought up earlier, which is this idea of uh, ideal playoff baseball, right? Like, do we want uh, do we want just mass chaos? Do we want the underdog to win every time? Do we just want to see the the best players face off against the best players. How do you kind of sort through that when it feels like all of this just comes up very rapidly? Um, I don't worry as much about uh, like uh, journalist is such a way to describe what I do. Uh, I don't know that <laughs> the term that I would pick. I, I think that I think it's fine to be excited about particular players or matchups or think that, you know, it would be great fun to see one team versus instead of another play in the world series. I think you can, you can acknowledge that preference and still write in a way that is objective and engaged with the facts sort of as they are. Um, I mostly, I, I root for good baseball. Like I just want to watch good baseball. So um, I am still ostensibly sort of a Mariners fan. And since um, they never factor into this equation whatsoever, I can just enjoy (laughs) the other good baseball. Um, uh, And, you know, selfishly as a person who runs a baseball website, I want there to be interesting stories because it makes it easier for people to write about them and it makes our readers more excited to read about them. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I think that as long as you're watching baseball, that kind of moves you it, and it can look a lot of different ways, right? Like that, uh, uh, that raised Astros game that Cole pitched on Saturday was spectacular. It was only really tense right at the end, but it was tremendously fun because he was just so incredible. So like, that's one kind of, um, sort of, ideal type, right? And then you look at the game that the Rays and Astros played uh, that that Morton started, you know, that sent it to a game five. And like that was very tense and there was a little bit of back and forth uh, toward the end and you did get nervous in a different way uh, and you had a defensive highlight that was amazing. So like you can, you can have these look uh, a bunch of different ways. I have enjoyed very much that, and Jay Jaffe wrote about this for us at Fangraphs this week, uh, the weird return of starting pitching <laughs> that yeah. has occurred <laughs> in this postseason. Um, and as a person who just, you know, there's something about getting to watch a guy like shove for eight innings that is just so cool. And it feels novel, which is so bizarre because it was just the way that baseball was for most of our lives. I know, it's um, so quaint now. Yeah, so like it's been really fun to just watch good starting pitching for so much of this. And, you know, even when the Rays uh, had a, you know, had the bullpen game, like that was fun too because that, like they did, you know, they were good. (laughs) They're all very good at throwing a baseball. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, I think that there are a lot of different ways to enjoy it. Um, Blowouts tend to be tend to be less fun. I think if you're going to have a blowout, it should be one like yesterday where all the action is really in one inning and 
and that inning is so weird that it kind of carries the rest of the game. But like, I will admit that, um, you know, there have been games this postseason that I've watched very intently and there have been games this postseason where I'm like, okay, I can get some editing done. And after the first inning, I was like, oh, okay. So I guess I get to like edit some stuff now. <laughs> yeah. Some, I was watching that at work and someone walked in and was like, why do you still have this game on? And I was like, okay, first of all, this is a deciding game of a playoff series. I understand right. that it's very unlikely that someone will come back, but it's still a baseball game. Yep. And I watch many mean, meaningless baseball games throughout the year. So yeah. I might as well just invest more time in watching this meaningful one. Yeah. Uh, something that you said, um, the the revival of starting pitching. I mean, you know, both of our colleagues, Ben Lindbergh, um, has talked about how that person is kind of like the protagonist of the baseball story. And that's yeah. something that's really fun to watch. And I think that's a really cool way of thinking about it and a way that I tend to agree with. But uh, the Yankees-Astros series, the one that we've kind of all been expecting and waiting for for a while now, um, is kind of like two sides of that coin. So like the Astros have very much, the Astros in their analytics department, much written about, obviously, and mm-hmm. the Yankees in their analytics department, equally as written about, I would say, because there's so many, <laughs> so much press in New York. Um, they have embraced different strategies. So um, do you think that like the way the Yankees have chosen not to lean on starting pitching in this last three years, despite the fact that it hasn't totally worked out for them in the playoffs, is them saying that they think this is a better strategy? Or do you think that it just happens that the circumstances have left them in a position where the Astros went and got all the starting pitching and the Yankees don't have it? I think it's more the latter than the former. I mean, they did build that bullpen. So it isn't as if they are indifferent to the importance of quality relief innings. But, you know, I don't think that well, I don't think that the Yankees either anticipated or wanted any of the injury luck that they had this year. Uh, Cause it's, it, at some point we will need to reckon with how spectacular and strange it is that this Yankees team uh, managed to win all of the games that it did because they just had no business being a 103 win team, given the, uh, the, both the people and dollars that ended up on the injured list for most of the season. But like, we shouldn't forget the Yankees went out in the off season and traded for James Paxton, right? Like they, they clearly did not want this to be a team that was so dependent on, um, on the relief core. And I think they've been relieved that some of that starting pitching has come back and has been able to be effective, even if it isn't going as deep into games as, you know, Garrett Cole is. Um, But I think that most teams in baseball appreciate and understand that you will just, you'll just always need more pitching than you think you will, because pitching is bad for you. Like no one should do it. It's awful. Uh, it's great. I'm glad that there are maniacs in the world who want to do it, but like, it's really bad for you. And pitchers get hurt. And uh, starting pitching that's really good is really expensive. And so some of this is also about you know that part of it. Um, and so I think that you know they're coming at that um, at that question probably from the same starting place, and then having to adapt to the roster they have and the realities of, uh, of that roster, you know, I'm sure that if the Yankees had been able to go get a Zach Granke at the deadline, they would have done it. Cause, uh, you know, that seems pretty cool to get to just pick up in July, you know, they could have um, totally done it. They, they could have done tried. it. They, <laughs> well, I think they did try. And also some of the, uh, they, they were in a weird spot 
this is not the point of this podcast, but like they were kind of in a weird spot with who they had in their system because they have a lot of interesting and intriguing guys, but they didn't really have like a headline piece. Anyway, we don't have to go into that, but... Um, <laughs> we can become a prospects pod real quick yeah. in the middle of October. It's <laughs> yeah, sure. the best time. I mean, I'm I'm getting up hilariously early tomorrow morning to fly to Arizona for Fall League Fall Stars, so there's never a bad time for prospects, I guess. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think that uh, the pendulum will swing back a little bit just because of the rule changes that are going to be in place soon. So I think we'll see some of the innings sort of reaccrue to to starting pitching but we're never gonna have consistent you know 200 inning guys again I don't think you know the the confluence of the expense of it guys getting hurt the quest for injury prevention and then how effective relievers are um maybe not every reliever year to year but just as a group uh, I think that um, the really good ones are good, although the bad ones have been pretty bad this year. Um, I think that combination of factors is likely to result in um, there being a there being a limit to how many innings starters go. It's just so weird. I know so- it's so it's so strange that like in real time, like Jacob Degrom and you know Walker Bueller and all these like starters that are bona fides and go late in games and Garrett Cole and Verlander and stuff have just become like nostalgia. You know, the yeah. nostalgia is so powerful in our culture right now and they're just becoming it in real time uh, during the baseball season. Which is why everyone should have, and I I, I did not have a Cy Young vote this year, um, so I want to assure people that I was not an actual real defiant maniac um, and did not vote for Lance Lynn, nor would I have if I had had a Sayo <laughs> vote. But why didn't we get more excited about Lance? I know. <laughs> Chaos God, like embrace Lance. Somewhere Michael Bauman's ears are perking up. I, I know. He, he got to me. <laughs> <laughs> I saw Lance Lynn in spring training and the Ryan brothers, like the football Ryan brothers were there. They were at a game at Salt River down in Arizona. They were wearing matching Lance Lynn jerseys, not jerseys, the real deal in all their (laughs) 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 Ryan-ness. And I, as soon as that happened, I was like, well, I hope that Lance Lynn has a hell of a year. And then Lance Lynn was almost a seven-win player. So what you're saying is I need to turn the Ryan brothers into fans of every Mets starting pitcher this year then? Do we we have the Ryan brothers on the podcast next? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I need to hear more about that connection because I I do not quite understand it. But yeah, um, it is devastating to me that Lance Lynn is younger than I am my stars. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not prepared for that. But uh, but yeah, Lance Lynn... Oh boy, what a what a thing! Lance Lynn has to make somebody in the Yankees front office very nervous. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um. All right. Before we let you go, um, I, I think probably our biggest beat on this podcast is just kind of waxing poetic about baseball players who we really enjoy watching play the game of baseball. And so I wanted to ask you if there was any specific player either in the last couple weeks 
or in the couple weeks going forward that particularly gets you excited when you see him take the field, take the mound, step into the batter's box, who just kind of brings you a sort of uh, visceral joy? Oh, that's a really good question. Hmm. Um, well, I mean, Garrett Cole seems like an obvious answer, but obvious answers aren't necessarily bad ones. Um, I, I think a lot of it is just like the guys you would think it's very fun to see Altuve having such a great series. Who else is, who's left? Let's think about this. Uh, the, I mean like the second half Jack Flaherty experience has been great. Um, yeah. Naming a lot of pitchers and also Jose Altuve, you know, one that I, uh, will say that maybe is a more under the radar pick just cause he also had a, until tonight had had kind of a bad series at the plate. Anyhow, uh, I really enjoy watching Michael Brantley hit. Yeah. The command of the zone, the bat speed. I mean, he's, he is, like I said, he has not had a, particularly sterling postseason so far he's been like until tonight he was what like uh in an over 16 hole or something like that he had a very nice game this evening um but i just really i just really enjoy watching watching that guy hit uh you know like the yankees are fun i don't know how we let that happen but we did <laughs> we've all failed collectively as a culture there yeah feels like uh, we were given warning signs and we just kind of fell asleep at the switch on that one. We just let Aaron Judge keep being handsome and funny and we never put a stop to it. And so tall. Super tall. Just like really <laughs> quite tall. Just kept uh, letting that dude appear on late night TV shows and do charming segments and, and yeah. now we have, you know. Distractingly tall. Like <laughs> tall enough that you would think that it it it's probably not fun a lot of the time, honestly, to be that tall. Um, I mean, all baseball players, well, not all of them, but the vast majority of them are much bigger than you even realize when you're watching them. And like, oh, you know, the other obvious answer, which I think is a good one, is it's been very fun to like see people, uh, see the look-in audience um, for the postseason, like get to know Juan Soto. Mm, uh, yeah. Because who doesn't enjoy watching him play uh it's been pretty he's a 132 wrc plus in the postseason oh my god (laughs) (laughs) i mean it's 26 plate appearances but still he's 20 when he got into that rundown against the brewers and was like celebrating before he was even tagged out i was like my heart is has grown three times tonight his hug with his dad is just that's magical And now he won't have to face Adam Kalarik anymore. So (laughs) we're going to get to see all kinds of fun stuff, I would imagine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He is delightful. I was just looking at Michael Branley's page. All-star three straight seasons. Guess who knew that? Not me. Oh, yeah. Michael Brantley's really good. Michael Brantley, uh, like, I have been given, uh, I, I have been given some amount of grief, some of which is probably deserved and some of which I find quite silly from Cleveland fans who think that I was and have been too hard on their uh, baseball club. And sometimes I maybe have been sort of dismissive of the talent that they do have because I just don't know why they're not trying to maximize uh, this this time they have with Francisco Lindor. Uh, but, like, how did – how 
how did they not even try to bring Michael Brantley back? I mean, I know that there have been times when Michael Brantley has been hurt, but Michael Brantley, when he is healthy, is pretty good. Four four point two win player this year, one thirty three WRC plus. You know what uh, the Cleveland outfield could have used? Michael, Michael Brantley. Brantley. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is what happens when you're owned by someone with the last name Dolan. You know, man, it's like a weird. I don't. I don't. I don't believe in in that kind of superstitious nonsense. Except sometimes I really do. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that might be a moment. Well, Meg, we've stolen more time than we originally asked for. So thank you so much for coming on and being a sage of postseason wisdom for us here on Tipping Pitches. We really appreciate it. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you again to Meg. It's so good when we have someone on who knows way more about baseball than us and can really carry the conversation in in terms of analyzing what's actually going on. You and I are usually just like spinning around and throwing shit at a dartboard. That's true. But I think it's also nice to um, talk to someone who can like meet us halfway on the existentialism because I think we we really talk ourselves down some some dark holes and it's nice to it's nice to have some company down there sometimes. <laughs> yes, and to drag ourselves out by our own bootstraps of our appreciation for someone like Michael Brantley. Yes, exactly. So big thanks to Meg for coming on and chatting with us. That was a really fun time. Okay, we're gonna do three up, three down and then we're gonna get out of here. Um and hopefully you, the listener, will enjoy listening to this before going to watch the NLCS Game 1 Friday. Um, okay, I'll, I'll start us off because I know you're struggling to really figure out what you wanted to get off your sacred list. So first off my list, uh, Randy Dobnak, Uber, etc. Um, I just put this on last week, but the, t- the Twins did get swept. And it feels like this story is already far in the rear view. I can barely even remember what happened in the Nationals-Dodgers game last night. It's crazy to even say last night, but um, things are moving fast. So that's coming off my list. Second off my list is something that you literally mocked me for having on my list last week. And that is the the concept of blame. <laughs> uh, it wasn't it wasn't mocking. In fact, it was it was very on brand for everything we talk about here. Well, yes, this very nebulous idea that I throw on my list because it's like it's like my version of high thoughts, you know, and and it's just baseball <laughs> thoughts. When I'm like staring down the barrel of a two to zero game in the sixth inning and it's moving really slow, I just start thinking about all that kind of stuff. So that that's yeah, what I put on there that week. That's the the real thoughts power hour. Like it, when the when the game is just shot and you're like, well, now what? When you've gone to like the second reliever. And it's earlier than the manager was anticipating putting in the second reliever. So, like, it's not really the reliever they wanted to use that day. That's when yeah. I'm sitting there thinking about, like, man, who do we blame for our failures in this world? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and applying it to the game of baseball. Okay, third off my list is... Um, it, it was probably about a month left in the regular season where I, uh, I asked you if you'd rather have... How you would build your ideal team heading into the postseason and how you would kind of distribute 
your war if you could in an ideal world? Would you rather have good hitting and average pitching or great pitching and average hitting, et cetera, et cetera? I'm going to take that off my list now, even though, you know, I still am thinking about that stuff a lot. And we just talked about that with Meg a little bit about um, team building strategy and the different factors that go into how teams end up the way that they do. Um, and I think that's playing out really cool in all of these series, really, with um, with the Yankees being built around their bullpen, the Astros being built around their starting pitching and their lineup, honestly, and the, the Nationals just being all in on just leaning on their starting pitchers as much as possible to the point where, like, I'm, I'm concerned about Patrick Corbin's arm in a non-jocular way. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think of it as much on this kind of, like, big top ideas level in the playoffs because I I am just so consumed by like the actual names and faces behind this team building strategy. So I haven't thought about that in a while. And frankly, just needed to get something off my list. So uh, those are my three this week. What is coming off your list? Coming off my list this week. uh, First, the Coliseum as a dive bar. Not because I I don't like the analogy, I really do have much love for it, but the the concept of the Oakland A's is so far beyond me now uh, that it's it's just hard to even conceptualize the existence of an Oakland Coliseum at all. The city's lawsuit against the, the county, notwithstanding, and that's a that's a whole other can of worms. So anyway, after, uh, <laughs> after watching what Garrett Cole did to the Rays in this series. Are you even really that sad that the A's are far out of your mind? (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) Um, Next off my list, you put on uh, Randy Dobnik uh, last week, and I had him on my list the the week prior. Oh my God, are we really taking the same thing off of our list? (laughs) It feels like cheating. Well, I think I I had him on the the list first, so uh, so I don't know who's really uh, who's really stealing from who here. Oh my god, uh, Randy, we're cheating at this I, made up game that we reinvented for a segment. Yeah, literally, where we just rotate three things in and out every single week. Um, Randy, my heart goes out to you, and uh, and I hope that Major League paycheck is fat. Last off my list. Speaking of paychecks, uh, Kevin Kiermeyer who doesn't understand the concept of profit and the exploitation of labor. Buddy, you got a whole off season to, uh, read, to, read, ab- <laughs> to read about exploitation. And I, I hope you take the time to do that. There's a lot so, of good uh, literature out there. Should we create a Kevin Kiermeyer reading list for next, <laughs> for this off season? Yeah. A, a Marks and Engels, just introduction. <laughs> <laughs> All right, should we uh, should we move on to what's going on our list this week? We should. Okay, the first thing on my list this week is something that we I asked Meg about, and that's the uh, the concept of postseason narratives and the confluence of them. I guess so. The idea that in one game we can get the Clayton Kershaw playoff narrative just thrown into a fucking pot and boiled and mixed in with the Bryce Harper is gone out of D.C. so the Nationals can actually win a playoff series narrative. Um, it's frankly pretty exhausting, uh, and it's frustrating that this is something that I'm adding to my list. Although, you know, I don't think it's quite as bad as we've all made it out to be, you know? Like, these narratives are the things that carry the interest in the game that we love, and even though you hate to see it, I can't believe that phrase has been <laughs> co-opted. 
It feels so stupid coming out of my mouth. I thought as it led into that sentence, I thought that I could say it in a normal way that wouldn't sound like I was just like, you hate to see it. But we just there's we no way to combine those that. words now. Um, no. But even though you you don't want to see it happen to a person like Clayton Kershaw, who we love so much as this icon of his generation, you know, the best regular season pitcher that we've ever been alive to watch his entire career, I guess. Um, it, it is important to acknowledge the way that these narratives kind of peak interest in the game and how they can be good, they can be bad. It's a double-edged sword. I just think it's uniquely frustrating how all people can tweet about is Bryce Harper crying Jordan shit when when the Nationals move on and we have things to be actually excited about. Um, but maybe that's just me. It's not just you. The uh, The narratives are bad. There's there's really no good uh, good narrative surrounding baseball. Whenever people talk about narratives, I'm like, all right, can we just watch the the game on the field now? And it's it really does feel inescapable at times, and it feels especially escapable when it feels like the narrative is real. Like when you're watching Clayton Kershaw implode. Oh, how terrible (laughs) for narratives to become true. (laughs) I mean, it really is though, because we, you know, we talked with Meg about this idea of watching players fail on a, a magnificent scale. And especially when the, the, the one thing that everyone likes to point out about a specific player is that he cannot perform in this specific circumstance. You really want him to perform in that circumstance. At least I would like to, especially a person who seems to be as good of a person as Clayton Kershaw is. So it's, it's, it's not that you, uh, you hate to see it, but you do objectively unironically hate to see it. That's all I'm trying to say. Agreed. Okay, what are you adding onto your list first this week? First on my list, Curtis Granderson. Oh, hell on, yeah. On TBS. I, I didn't know if you saw this because I DM'd it to you on Twitter and you ghosted me. So I'm glad that you're adding it onto your list. I'm sorry. Yes, I I got I got alerts about it. I got it DM'd to me. I I couldn't escape it. You know, set up set up Google email alerts for just Curtis Granderson. You know, <laughs> why not? <laughs> Keep him in my sphere. Um this is what we need. I I find it almost a, like a breath of fresh air that we haven't really talked about um the the playoff like broadcasters so far in part because they haven't been like miserable i think and also because i don't think we've been forced to like like john smoltz hasn't just been piped into our homes for every single game we've kind of had a diverse array of people we can listen to but beside the the point i think that a move like this of getting in a a recent player who is very clearly like beloved by all the fans clearly brings a um a unique and quirky perspective to the game and has a has a very clear love for the game is uh, what we need you know i i think it's always exciting to get new voices in the broadcast booth and it uh it may go great it may not, but as long as he doesn't start theorizing about how even leads are better than odd number leads, then you know what? I think we'll be in the clear. <laughs> I saw someone tweet yesterday that um, 
the Cardinals fucked up by scoring uh, one more run because it pushed their lead from 11 to 12. And that, that meant that they were going to give up that lead now because it was an even number or something or whatever. However, that math works out. I forget what the actual theory was by A-Rod because I've pushed it so far out of my brain at this point. But yeah, yes, you're right. This is a great thing. I'm very excited for it. I am certain that we will not let this whole playoffs go without complaining about John Smoltz, but we have not been subjected to only John Smoltz yet at this point. I'm pretty sure I've had him muted for every game that he's been doing that I've had. I've been watching a lot of the games here at work because this is uh, my second full postseason where I'm on the West Coast, and so I can actually just kind of like hang around for the games and watch them on my computer here. But I'm sure at some point when I'm watching a World Series game in the comfort of my own home and I actually have the TV turned up, I will get very mad online and offline about John Smoltz and his hatred of the game of baseball. Naturally. Um, Okay, here's something else I'm going to get mad at. Second thing on my list this week. Uh, The chop. The Braves' handling of the chop. The the Braves... uh, And the way that they formulated the narrative around the reason for stopping the chop during the playoffs... And and naming Ryan Helsley uh, specifically in their official press statement felt like really targeted to him um, in a way that I thought is like frankly kind of dangerous because it it's clear that the Braves fans don't want to stop doing this. Not all of the Braves fans fans feel that way, but enough feel that way that they continue to do it at every single game and they continue to ignore the racial ramifications of it. And for the Braves organization to lean into that in a way, knowing that their fans feel that strongly about this gesture, and to name the to name another player as the only reason that they're stopping and doing it, not the entirety of the experience of indigenous people in this country, it feels just frankly kind of fucked up that they did that. And I mean, good that they didn't continue to do it and say, fuck Ryan Helsley, I guess, but that is like the very bare minimum and they should just get rid of it outright. And it shouldn't be because one guy had to go out on a limb and speak his mind, who, a guy who is a member of the Cherokee Nation and a pitcher for the opposing team. Like, it, it shouldn't take that much of an exceptional example for you as a franchise to think, maybe we should stop doing this. Like, why did it take you feeling bad about Ryan Helsley to think, yeah, we should stop doing this thing that like a lot of people feel is pretty racist? Yeah, and, and it feels like the the Braves were really trying to toe a line that just isn't there. Like saying we're only we're going to stop doing these offensive things under these specific circumstances so as not to offend you personally. It it's just like that middle ground doesn't exist. You either endorse it or you don't. Right? Like like he was speaking out about the the entire existence and and the culture around it. Yeah. He wasn't <laughs> like, not, it only it, offends it, me when I'm in the stadium. If he saw right. it on TV, it, he would be like, yeah, this still fucking sucks. Stop doing it. Your games are being broadcast to the yes. world. Yeah, exactly. So, and also let's not forget that this isn't some time-honored tradition by the Braves. It wouldn't make it any... Um, better if it was, certainly. But this is something that was brought over to the Braves by Deion Sanders in 1991. So 
<laughs> I would be willing to bet that the majority of Braves fans are literally older than the Tomahawk <laughs> Chop at the Brave Stadium. So, like, what the, what the fuck? This is it's the Confederate monuments of sports chants. <laughs> it literally is. Extremely tough. Braves, fuck off. You lost. It sucks. Now Bye. I can stop rooting for the Cardinals, and I feel like a weight has lifted off my shoulders. Go Nats! Oh wait, the weight is back on my shoulders. Okay, what's <laughs> what else is adding onto your list? Uh, onto my list, briefly referenced during the conversation with Meg, but uh, the balls are different. Yeah, they are. <laughs> um, can we talk about how Major League Baseball is just kind of changing the balls willy-nilly at this point? Like, I cannot fathom a scenario in which you would like very strategically make it so that the ball does something completely different from what it has done the last six months of the year, you know, like, yeah. And maybe it's a weird reaction to like all the, the hand wringing over boosted home runs and, and more home runs and higher scoring games lead to longer games, which is what Rob Manfred very clearly doesn't want, especially on a national stage, but it's especially, it's very bizarre to consume a game that just feels fundamentally different from the one that we have been watching. When you see Max Muncy absolutely crush a ball that just dies just short of the warning track, it, it just kind of makes you scratch your head a little bit. I'm yeah. just kind of like, well, now we've gotten used to them hitting bouncy balls. Or tennis balls or whatever, you know. Um, Rob Arthur over at Baseball Perspectives did a really great deep dive into this today, into how fundamentally the balls are different and there's more drag on them. And I encourage everyone to to go check that out because it's really just some some baffling stuff that's that's going on in Major League Baseball right now. I think it I think the frustrating part is that it feels like we have whiplash, right? And and Rob Manfred is giving us whiplash. I'm I'm using Rob Manfred as like the entire league office. Like I don't I don't know how much of an active role he's taking in this. I'm sure it's a very active one, but I don't I can't really prove that. So I'll just say it feels like we have a little bit of whiplash because we just for the last two or whatever two of the last three years we've had this regular season where this is what we expected. And in the twenty seventeen playoffs, the ball was still flying off the bat. And so you would think that in a year where the regular season was XYZ, that the postseason would be XYZ. I, I was going to bring this up when we were talking to Meg about it, but we kind of didn't have enough time. We already squeezed too much time out of her before she had to get on her flight. But um, the study that Rob Arthur did, of course, is only on the balls that were actually hit, you know, that were because he can't study the ones that were thrown to the side. It, is it just me or is every starting pitcher, Garrett Cole specifically, throwing a lot of balls away because they get a ball back from the umpire. You know, Bueller was doing this yes, yesterday too. They get a ball back from the umpire and they look at it pretty briefly, run their fingers over it maybe one time or just kind of like look at it physically with their eyes and just kind of throw it away, throw it back to the dugout. And they'll go through like one or two before they pick one that they want to throw. And I, I don't, I'm sure that there is some kind of thing with the league where like uh, there are less juiced balls to use right now or maybe they're running out of juice balls like I I don't really know like maybe they're going back to the well of the the old balls that they had before they started juicing them like maybe the the 
the Rawlings production can't keep up with the home run rate because they didn't expect this many balls to be ending up in the in the homes of fans. <laughs> That's actually really funny. But they're throwing a lot of pit balls back, so maybe the balls are still juiced, but now that we're in the postseason, pitchers are willing to just be sticklers for it and throw it back to their dugout and say, listen, I, I'll do this until you get me a ball that I feel like is not juiced because it matters now more than ever. Like, you know, one home run as we saw with Howie Kendrick, can end your entire season and potentially get Dave Roberts fired. I know I know they came out and said that he's going to be back for 2020, but it matters a lot. And if pitchers are factoring that in, maybe they are just looking for the non-juiced balls. Because I don't think every single ball that I saw get hit in the regular season this year behaved like a super-juiced ball in the way that we have talked about with that narrative this year. No, but I also don't think that every single pitcher in the postseason is feeling around in the bag and finding the the non-juiced balls my <laughs> my guess is, <laughs> <laughs> my guess is there's probably a decent enough sample size and and the the difference between the the drag coefficient on the ball in the regular season versus the playoffs is so massively different that i i just i find it hard to believe that Garrett Cole or Walker Bueller like tossing a few balls back would change that although I I think you're right that like the fact that the pitchers are even catching on at this point we're through the know, looking are, glass. Are, are figuring these things out like yeah. it feels like it's it's going to start spiraling out of control at some point I don't know how it hasn't already no no and so it, the fact that there are just like juiced balls and non juiced balls out there and the leagues just kind of throwing their hands up in the air is uh, one way of going about it you could say. Okay, here here is how the ball is going to be treated for the next 30 years. It's the same way that steroids are treated, have been treated for the last 30 years. So yeah. the same way that when a when a player has a bad year and then has a good year, that people are like, oh, that dude's juicing now, and they just make that offhanded joke as if that is not a human being that worked really hard to get better at baseball. The very next year, if the home run rate goes up at all, or if one pitcher's home run rate goes up, everyone's just going to be like, well, juice ball. And that, that's going to be the end of the conversation. Like, I hope Rob Manfred knows that his lack of transparency on this matter has completely fucked over both the MLB Players Association and the MLB fans' sense of faith in the very fundamental instruments that we're playing this game with. Yes, and and this is obviously a a much longer, larger conversation to have for another day about how the the legacy of the sport is likely being altered um like a but, lot it's being altered a lot <laughs> altered a lot yes um but at the very least maybe let's uh i'd t- i'd take a few more dingers this postseason i do i still like home runs i've gotten used to them at this point so just like keep them coming you know why not your tweet about how he should have juiced the balls more for the Oakland Athletics is i'm still feeling that one uh all right what is up last on your list okay up last on my list because we somehow got into a 10 minute juice ball rant in the middle of this obviously Uh, up last on my list is uh jack flaherty guy by the name of jack flaherty don't think his Uh. name has been uttered on this podcast all year and uh that's probably because we have a a shadow policy to not really talk about the cardinals if we don't absolutely have to uh you know we talked about mike matheny and his Cardinals tenure, but but I am going to uh, step aside from that for one second to talk about Jack Flaherty, who is 
fucking incredible. What a bulldog. What a fun pitcher to watch. He has electric stuff, obviously, and um, has been just so incredible since the All-Star break, but also just feels like one of those dudes who just like wants to go out in the game five and just like annihilate the Braves. Like the fact that he was pitching into the sixth inning is probably ill-advised, but I'm sure if you asked him, he would have been like, no, I wanted to go complete game. And it's that like same little gene that's in Max Scherzer as well that that allowed him to like escape Dave Martinez and somehow end up in the bullpen in game five when he was supposed to be nowhere near pitching at all. Um, And, you know, I was thinking about this before we started recording when we were writing down our three up, three down. Um, Jack Flaherty is uh, 23. He just turned 24. And, you know, we've talked ad nauseum on this podcast about the young superstar boom. And I, I feel like we've, whether it's subconsciously or consciously limited it to position players because like they're a much safer bet. Once you see them come up and be good for three, four years, you know, they're probably going to be really good for the rest of their, their careers. Like Juan Soto is not going to forget how to completely control the strike zone and be an incredible hitter. You know, Ronald Acuna is not going to suddenly lose his otherworldly athleticism that allows him to be amazing. But I feel like we're subconsciously hedging a little bit against a lot of these young pitchers who are, just as incredible and just as important for the game. And this playoffs has reminded me of that. Watching a guy like Walker Bueller, who's also really young, go out there and be just unequivocally the best pitcher for the Dodgers, who are a 106-win baseball team this year. I think we should start factoring in some of these guys. Like, And Jack Flaherty is one of them, if not the one. So shout out Jack Flaherty. I'm throwing him on my list. He may be the only, the first and the last Cardinal to ever get on Bobby's three up, three down list. The the Cardinals, I I will say, are becoming no no like, no 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 are no, becoming no. dangerously close to becoming likable. Like seriously, <laughs> like I, it's really hard. Marcelo Zuna is a lot of fun to watch, and I really like Colton Wong and Tommy and Tommy Edmund. <laughs> I mean, it it pains me to say it. It really does. But like, I'm I won't root for them, but I won't root against them per se. I wanna I want to see them go toe to toe with the Nationals in seven games, so we can just get suck as much fun out of that series as possible. Because you're right, there's a there's certainly a lot there to take in. If you ever feel like you're getting too too close to loving the Cardinals or even liking the Cardinals. Just think about Carlos Martinez saying, I feel like he should have respected me as a veteran player. Yeah. He said he should have put some fucking respect on my veteranness. Yeah. (laughs) What a weird thing to do. Okay. Who's (laughs) whatever. (laughs) Isn't he like 26? I know. (laughs) It's like, oh, I've I've been here for four more years than you. Please don't bat flip as you hit a home run in the playoffs against me. Fuck out of here with that, honestly. But um, Let's not get down too far down that rabbit hole. Sad that Ronald Acuna is out of the playoffs because he is a, a light of joy in my life. Um, what is the third and final thing on your three up this, this week? Last up, because I pretty much can't go like three weeks without talking about him or at least mentioning him on this podcast or, you somehow or putting him on my into list. This? <laughs> God, oh, I wish. Now I want to. Now I feel obligated to. So Yasiel Puig shouts out. Uh, no, it's uh, 
it's Zach Greinke. Oh, okay. Who, who gave who gave the press conference to end all press conferences uh, this past week? Sixty-seven words. That was the extent of his, uh, you could say, abbreviated press conference. And we have had many a discussion on athletes' obligation to the media and to engage with them in a cordial manner and to kind of meet them halfway, give those platitudes. And boy, oh boy, did Zach give those platitudes. (laughs) (laughs) I just... I I genuinely think that I could read the the entire back and forth and it would be it would take up less time than some of the conversations that we've already had and I won't do that but uh but I'll just I'll read a couple choice excerpts so uh so one question Zach what do you think has made your transition to the Astros so seamless it's just pitching you just do what you do <laughs> When you see it in a transcript and when someone else reads it to you, I guess, and, and also when Granky delivers it because he's so like uh, deadpan about it and you can very much tell that he's not like trying to embody these ideals. He's just trying to repeat them back to you because he feels like he has to because of this stupid world that we've created for him. You're like, yeah, the floor does kind of drop out from underneath on all of this bullshit. <laughs> but But I think what is... What I love most about it is that he clearly like has an awareness of that, you know, like, yeah, like he's giving the exact same amount that every other player is giving to the members of the media. He's just doing it without all the bullshit in between. He's saying, look, I have a, I have a position to fill. And so I'm going to give you the words that you need to put into your story and absolutely nothing else like it like it feels like it's all delivered with a sort of tongue-in-cheekness that i can i can appreciate i he's just he's just there so he won't get fined and frankly we're we're all better for it yeah it's at least self-aware and not exactly like malicious in a way that some of the stuff that like Russell Westbrook has done in terms of like singling out individual reporters because of stuff that they've written in the past that was true. You know, it's not like that. It's just kind of like, look at this theater that you guys made. I'm going to come in and be a bad actor in it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And somehow he ends up being the one with which you are the most enamored. So, Zach, we love you. Keep it up. When they write... When they write a a movie about the twenty the twenty nineteen Astros and the Zach Grant Granky trade happens in the middle of it, I'm going to be really excited for Jesse Eisenberg to grow out his hair and play him in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Same. Clouds so swift, rain won't lift, gate won't close, feelings close. Okay, uh, if you are a fan of a team that's still in it, and you are a listener of Tipping Pitches. We are rooting for your team. That's all we we'll, we'll sell we'll sell our fandom pretty easily, you know. If you listen, you tell people about the podcast, and you're a fan of the team, you want to reach out to us and tell us to just openly root for that team next week. We will do it. But you have to prove that you at least told one or two other people about our podcast. How about that? <laughs> just bribing our listeners at this point. <laughs> We're bribing them with all we have, and that's our ability to root openly for teams. It's not like we could pay them. 
you know? Yeah, yeah. Root openly for teams that we kind of just openly root for on this podcast anyway. But, you know, we'll root for the Astros a little bit harder. Or we'll root for the Nats. It'll be a tough hang, but we might even root for the Cardinals if you're a big Cardinals fan. Anyway, thank you so much to Meg Rally for joining us for this podcast. Um, It's always good when we have a guest. And I I think it remains true that she is our only um, playoff guest thus far. So uh, we will be back at some point, hopefully early next week, to kind of reassess where we're at in the middle of the championship series. Um, And if they're... Or big old storylines that we whiffed on, please let us know as always. Tipping underscore pitches on Twitter, tipping pitches podcast at gmail.com. Alex, anything to leave the listeners with at 1 a.m. Eastern time for you? Uh, nothing except, uh, except enjoy this baseball, y'all. It's fun, and I've had my heart broken like I think 14 times and counting. So, uh, so I've really got to get that number to double before I start to feel anything. Enjoy this baseball, y'all. Enjoy this baseball, y'all, indeed. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. We'll see you next week. Right behind.